Success Insight shares the stories of the people with passion and drive who make things happen in the world. Here's your host, Howard Fox. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Success Insight Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. James Bolin. James is the author of Fixing This Broken Thing, the American Criminal Justice System. James has spent 15 years as a police officer in Chicago and eight years as a mental health counselor in Memphis, and he received his PhD in criminal justice from Walden University. You know, as a former Chicagoan, really about a month, I'm very familiar with the topic of crime and really the war on drugs and police use of force. So really, James, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the Success Insight podcast and to really talk about this very important subject with you. Thank you for having me. James, you wrote this book, Fixing This Broken Thing, The American Criminal Justice System. This was back in in 2008, so we're about a year and a half old. Before we kind of dive into the book, can you perhaps share a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are today? I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. I was fortunate that my parents were able to send me to Catholic school, which gave me a really good foundation academically for things later in life. After I finished high school, I decided that I wanted to go to college for free. I said, okay, I'll join the military. And I ended up choosing the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps recruiter was the only one that did not lie to me. He told me that they were going to kick my butt. Are you man enough to handle it? I'm like, okay, yeah. Let's in retrospect, I guess that guy just read me like a book because I was like, yeah, bring it on. And then when I got to Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, California, I found out, no, he was not kidding. <laughs> They're for real. But I don't regret it. Not at all. If I had to do all over again, I'm without hesitation, I'm grateful for the training I received there because it has most assuredly helped me as far as life is concerned. I have to share, uh, I've had a number of guests on the podcast. They've been in the Marines, they've been in the, the Army, Air Force. I don't think I've had anybody from the Navy yet. But one thing that I will always share when I'm interviewing these guests is I wish way back when, when I was first thinking about what am I going to do with my life, I wish I had gone into the military. I think it would have been a, a foundational experience for me to learn, you know, a different kind of discipline. I think I've always had aspects of discipline, but I think that military discipline would have been very beneficial. And I love the fact that you shared that the recruiter was truthful and kind, I would say. Yes. <laughs> so Yeah, he told me that, that he told me it would go, you know, kick my butt. And then he are you man enough to handle it? Sure I can. Bring it on. All right. So <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now you you're you're now in, in the military. What what types of uh roles did you have there and then and did those help inform the direction that that your career was going to be taking well when i finished boot camp and i went to training initially i was trained to become a service record book clerk in other words to work in personnel and something happened between the airplane ride from california to japan iwakuni japan everything changed because when I got to Japan, I was informed that I would not be working in personnel, that they had begun working on my security clearance 
and that I would be working in the classified material control center. Like, okay, well, let's see where that goes. I started working there with two other sergeants. One rotated back to the United States about three weeks later. So it was myself and another sergeant. He made a mistake and it was critical. So they removed him from that spot. So that left the 18-year-old Lance Corporal in charge of violation of our nation's military secrets in a foreign country. Oh, wow. So, yes, the Marine Corps is really good about growing you up real quick. So I was like, okay. What I ended up doing is I noticed, I said, okay, you got into trouble because there was a document left on the desk that should have that should not have been. But we are really cramped for space. So as I looked through the files, I noticed that we had classified documents there dating back to World War II. And I knew that those documents were on microfiche at the uh, Department of Defense in Washington. So we didn't need this here in Japan. So I shredded and burned it all, created space for the the more up-to-date documents. And I devised my own system for the dissemination and storage of my classified materials and documents. And the major was very happy. That's good. I mean, it's it's nice. To, uh, usually, it's uh, you haven't done good enough and they're telling you you did bad. Therefore, we're going to have you do something. Maybe it's not so nice. How long were you in the Marines? I was in two years. Two years. And when you left, what was your next area for your that you wanted to explore in your career? Well, I came back home to Chicago and enrolled in school at the University of Illinois. Crime and punishment has always fascinated me. So I began working on my undergraduate degree in criminal justice. What was it about criminal justice that interested you? Again, ever since I was a small child, Crime and punishment has always, always fascinated me. Then I had two uncles that were Chicago police officers, another uncle that was a special agent charged in the Naval Investigative Services. Now it's called Naval Criminal Investigative Services. I've always been fascinated, too, by studying why people do the things they do. Okay. Going back and getting your your bachelor's in criminal justice, when did the, and the fact that you had relatives that were on the police force in Chicago, was that what prompted you to pursue that degree and then to become a police officer? Yes, they had significant influence on me. I watched the things they did and how their careers went. And the thing I got from one of the uncles in particular is that there are going to be some times that you are actually going to get to help someone. And I do have an altruistic nature. I like helping people. So I was like, okay, I'm in. Let's go for this. And during your years on the police force, what were some of the roles that you played, you know, kind of build upon your desire to then go back and get your PhD in criminal justice? One of the initially, of course, you you want to be a sponge. You want to soak up as much as I can. And I was blessed with a really good field training officer. There's only so much. like You learn the rules and the regulations in the police academy. You actually learn how to police on the streets. So that that is going to, and depending on who it is that you have as a field training officer, that will impact, that can impact significantly 
upon your career. I had a, a Frank Fuda was my field training officer, and he was outstanding. And spending the time on the police force, had this idea for the book, the fixing the, this broken thing, the American criminal justice system, had that been on your radar or did this come about because of going back to school and pursuing your PhD uh, in criminal justice? The impetus for the book is my career in the police department and seeing up close and personal how the system functions and a lot of times how it fails to function. So I came in with one idea. I think that the police, you know, our criminal justice system can be or is this. And then working in the criminal justice system, I found out, no, not quite. Before we really kind of dive into the book, your work in going back to, to graduate school, did that help you in your research for the book and to really kind of create the, you know, here's the components that matter the most. These are the things that we need to fix. And that kind of take you from being, you know, a, an on the, on the street law enforcement professional to also thinking critically as a, as a criminal justice expert in focusing on the criminal justice system. Did that PhD inform you and, and how this book should be, should be structured? I won't say that. Actually, but the, the classroom, what it provided for me, it exposed you to the history of how the system is established and the thought process as to why it is, for example, why we have our courts are an adversarial system. And I started, again, as going into the courtrooms, I'm like, wow, so actually this is just competition. So we're coming in here to compete every day. How on earth does that really contribute to attaining justice? Because I really don't believe we can attain justice unless we uncover the truth. So I was like, no, I did, you know, so that, that, little things like that. And then seeing how certain people that I attempted to help or and I couldn't get it done with the constraints of the system, because for various reasons, the system just failed them. So let's talk about the book now. The title is very specific, you know, fixing the broken thing. Talk to us about the, you know, the construction of the book and how is this expected to be read and consumed? And what is your, your goals for people who are going to read this book? What do you want them to take away from it? Well, my overall goal, as far as the book is concerned, it's a lofty goal, but I would really like for the subject matter of the book to become the source of a uh, national dialogue, because I've heard people, we consistently hear our elected, and I'm choosing this word specifically, our elected employees, or those people who are seeking to become elected to particular offices speaking about criminal justice reform. But what I don't hear a lot is, what specifically do you want reform? Or I hear the people that are protesting, they want criminal justice reform. What do you want reform? And in what manner should we accomplish it? What I believe is that my book provides a blueprint because it speaks to where the book criticizes, but it offers solutions. The solutions I propose are expensive, but then the book explains how to pay for those solutions without raising taxes, 
without diverting or defunding any other governmental function. So in the words within the book and in the notes on Amazon and the other book sites, I mean, you talk about, for example, the war on drugs. I mean, the war on drugs is as old as I am. It probably dates you and I. You and I are probably not that far apart. 1870. Yeah, okay, maybe a little long. I can't go that far back. Um, 1870. How we doing? Well, I think, yeah, really. The, now you've got the, this prison system. Back in when Ronald Reagan closed down all the, you know, through his policies, closed down all the mental health facilities, and you write, you know, prisons have become the de facto mental health systems. And then you talk about a little bit about education, the graduation rates, academic achievements. And I'm assuming the more education, the more academic achievement, the less likely are you to be a visitor within the criminal justice system. And now we've got the police use of force, especially within the minority communities. And that's playing out all across our country right now. So therein lies the rule irony is your book is extremely timely. Who would have guessed? So what are some of the solutions that our, as you say, our elected employees should be at least contemplating or beginning the dialogue because things cannot continue the way they are. I mean, you just look out, you walk outside today, whether the city you live in, the city I, I just moved from Chicago, and we both know how Chicago is or was, and even Las Vegas. I mean, it's there. there's crime here. So what are some of the solutions? And is there a first move, a first step we should be taking? Well, think of all the things that I suggested in the book. Maybe the most important is developing that curricula for uh, first through 12th grade in conflict resolution. Because intrinsic with that would be developing, honing, training, critical thinking skills. Many too many decisions are made emotionally as opposed to rationally. I got the idea about the conflict resolution curricula thinking back over my own experience in school. As I mentioned earlier, I had 12 years at Catholic school. And in each of those 12 years, we had to mandatorily take a class in theology. You know, religion was after school. It occurred to me while I was policing in Chicago, especially with the district in which I worked. I worked in the seventh district. I worked in Englewood. That was not a nice area. (laughs) I was never bored. (laughs) You were never bored. Never bored. But every day at the end of school, there had to be a heavy police presence outside of the high schools to ensure that the kids didn't kill each other. And I, and I thought to myself, because they had to stagger the dismissal times so that, okay, we could go to this school, Harper High School for dismissal, then over to Robeson, then over to Englewood, where we had to be outside the schools to make sure the kids don't kill each other. And I thought to myself, what if we could start teaching and training our kids how to resolve conflict without violence, without fussing, cussing, and doing the food. And we made a mandatory class that they had to take from first through 12th grade, much like Catholic schools require their students to take religion first through 12th grade. So I put that in a letter, and I mailed it to the then superintendent of Chicago Public Schools, Arnie Duncan, and I'm still waiting for a response. Amazing. 
<laughs> that, that, that didn't no response. But I honestly believe that if we can develop that curricula, especially because it will start teaching and training our kids in critical thinking skills, something uh, which our country is sorely in need. That would be yeah, that, that. I think that would be the foundation to, and that will help with the other suggestions that I've made in the book for making our criminal justice system, our, which of course would make our standard of life a lot, lot better. I love that idea. I mean, as a as a coach, and it's really interesting is the whole idea of conflict. There are courses and other professionals who are teaching inside of organizations for executives, teams, and how to get along, how to resolve conflict, how to have dialogue where there are multiple opposing opinions and ideas of what right looks like. And we invest all of that. And I, you know, I, myself, coaching peers of mine, spend a lot of time in workshops and one-on-one coaching, helping these individuals. And I, I think there's there's a certain irony that as kids, and maybe it's just, is it unique to the Chicago public schools? Do the suburban schools, the private schools, are they learning conflict, coping skills, and how to have a dialogue? Are they do? Have you explored whether these types of programs do exist, perhaps not in the inner city schools like in the city of Chicago? I've not seen any evidence that that happens. And, well, I think about, again, how when we watch the news and that, for example, let's, let's talk about our elected employees. They don't do it. <laughs> they don't do it. We uh, just when we see people with opposing views, there's always this hostility, the vitriol. They attack one another and talk and talk to one another as though these people are aliens, or that this is someone that that intends to do grievous bodily harm to you. And as I watch this, and I say one of the things too, they'll jump off the page hearing is a physical ability. Listening is a skill. And I don't believe I see a heck of a lot of evidence of people actually listening to one another. Because even when someone has a suggestion with which you totally disagree, there are still parts of that that you can, from which you can draw, that can augment or boost whatever your position is. That you won't pick up on that unless you listen to that other person because when we fail to listen to them we're sending them a message that what it is you have to say is really very unimportant so essentially we're telling that person you are unimportant how on earth are you going to come to any sort of resolution when you're belittling and disrespecting the other person when you're doing that to one another nothing comes together I think there is most definitely a lot of room for improvement. And I think, as you so correctly said, that it gets worse, it's getting worse, is we listen to tell versus listening to understand. And it's easy to speak. It's it's, it's an ability, but a skill is to, to be able to listen effectively and, you know, to increase our understanding. Back when you were in in Chicago and you write this letter to Arne Duncan, he goes on to become a secretary of education. And now we're 
you know, almost four years into the current administration. How do you continue to promote this kind of idea of conflict education in the earliest years of our education? And in that, and what are some of the other programs that you see would be essential to really starting to take steps to fix the criminal justice system? I have been reaching out using various social media engines and then talking with friends that I've made over the years and really trying to put together a group of folks to sit down with me and and let's help develop this curricula and find a school that'd be willing to test it so that you know I'm working trying to get to get that done. As I constructed the book, I began in chapter one with the court system because again I said we have what's known as the adversarial system. And actually, what we when you walk into a courtroom, I learned very quickly that it was an arena for competition, where I believe it should be a fact-finding exercise in pursuit of the truth. Because unless we have uncovered the truth, how on earth can you attain justice? In chapter one, I attack some of the various things that are in place to excuse people from the responsibility of their actions. Too many things that will excuse a person from the responsibility of their actions. That being the case, how on earth do you attain justice? Because justice has a price tag. And it should not. If maybe justice is supposed to be really blind, there should not be a price tag associated with it. And what I really came to learn, too, from working in the criminal justice system that Public defenders get a bad rap. It's not so much that they're bad lawyers. It's that they don't have the same resources. In general, I think we've gotten spoiled by television and movies. Because when you watch Law and Order, it's a really good TV drama. And the prosecutor comes into the courtroom, and they're dealing with just that particular case. Or let's start with the arresting process. The officers go out and make an arrest. And courts with the dog on TV show, three weeks later, they're in trial. That's the fantasy. That rates right up there and puff the magic dragon. <laughs> <laughs> That's not happening. If once you make the arrest, maybe the next day you get the probable cause here, then the person gets arraigned in another month. If that person decides he or she wants a trial, that trial is going to take place about 18 to 24 months later when the prosecutors walk into the courtroom, unlike on law and order. When they come in, public defenders, prosecutors, they come in with a cart. On their cart, there's 30 files for each one. That's the morning call. Then we go through those 30 cases, come back in the afternoon, same cart, 30 different files. That's the afternoon call. So for the public defender, he or she is looking at 60 cases or so that they handle every day in court. As far as the prosecutor's concerned, unlike the television show, the prosecutors don't have time to go out onto the street and conduct their own private investigations of a particular case. Caseload is much too heavy. Unlike the law and order where you have a law and order, you have a whole squad working one case. Oh, no. You walk in, you take a look at a doggone detective death. 
and he, he uh, that detective and his or her partner might have 10 or 15 cases going at one time, but see if there's 10 people, if there's what, 20 people, that's what, 10, uh, uh, a group of, uh, okay, so you got 10 different groups working, they each have their own 15 to 20 cases working. So they can't come together and go, we're going you go do this part of that case and you do that. No. Really good TV drama, but that's not the reality. Yeah, this TV has a habit of skewing reality, most definitely does. With this book, what, what are you hearing from your peers, from individuals in law enforcement, in the criminal justice system, at the courts? What, do you, what are they saying about this book? Most of them, a, a lot of people with whom I've been in conversation said, that, that I, I like it. You have a lot of good ideas. It will never happen because they won't allow this to happen. And they're that mythical they. So they, they will never let this happen. There were, in chapter two, of the book where I talk about policing, some would say, because maybe I was too critical of the training. And I don't believe so. I believe, okay, again, I told you I'm, uh, I'm a former Marine. Those three months I spent in Marine Corps boot camp better prepared me for policing than six months in the police academy. I didn't think there was that much very challenging about the police academy. And I really believe that the police academy should be just as challenging as old school Marine Corps boot camp. You know, it's interesting that you would say that in, as all the events of late have really, and over the years, but really this this last year have really been coming to fruition and, you know, the use of force. And and I, I something dawned, really, not dawned on me, but it jumped out at me is it takes more hours of training to be a I don't know, maybe it was a hairstylist or a massage therapist or a beautician than it does to become a police officer. It takes more training, more hours to demonstrate your proficiency before they will give, let you lay your hands on someone's back to massage a muscle or cut their hair or to apply the makeup versus giving somebody a, a gun and setting them out on the streets? Well, one of the big differences between the two trainings, when I got to San Diego and we were standing on those yellow footprints at one o'clock in the morning, one of the things, again, that jumped off the page at you is when that Marine told you, look to your left, look to your right. One of you will not be here at the end of these 12 weeks and we will do everything fair and unfair to determine whether or not you pack the gear to serve in my beloved core. Contrast that with, and when I started, there were 80 people in my platoon, 65 graduated. Now contrast that with the police academy. When I started, there were 300 people in our class, 298 graduated. Wow. Because now what the police academies do across the nation as far as the vetting process they submit each of us has to take a psychological exam it's a multiple choice test well over 300 questions and from this test 
they believe they will get an insight to your character. Actually, in that test, there's a, it's a group, I think, of about maybe 80 questions that they ask two or three different ways. So essentially, they're just looking for consistency. Are you going to keep answering them? Right. And the research I've uh, done uh, indicates that about the people that take the test, only 5% don't make it. 5% flunk it. Now, the Marine Corps, their, its methodology is that they believe if they put you in consistently stressful situations for three months, we're going to know who you are because your character will surface. Or like the you know, senior drill instructor, Gunnery Sergeant Stein told us, we don't know about you. I honestly believe that that's a much more accurate barometer of that person's character than that multiple choice test. So I have a question, James. What hope do you have for change, you know, here in our America today? You know, you have this book, you're, you're, you're speaking about, a, you know, a system that is broken, the criminal justice system. You have laid out some recommendations of things that need to change. What hope do you have? Well, my biggest hope is that, again, because I'm not expecting anything from the elected employees. My biggest hope is that there's a groundswell from we the people to make this happen. Because that means we the people have to get off, like chapter six, it says get off the sofa. We the people have to get off the sofa and actually start and take control of our democratic republic. We have to go to work. And let those people in the elected office remind them that they are our employees. They work for us. We do not work for you. But do you remember the old James Brown song, Paying the Cost to Be the Boss? <laughs> Since I pay the salary, I'm paying the cost to be the boss. And it's not our special interest groups. It's, it's we the people. So you work for us. Given what's happening right now on our streets, whether it be Portland, whether it would be Washington, D.C., Chicago, do you have hope that there is this groundswell being created? Gosh, I'm, I'm praying on it. One of the things I did, and I, I, I figured it would go over like a lint balloon, but I did it anyway. I sent a letter to the president of the Fraternal Order of Police, the national president, and I asked that the FOP take this step, come out and denounce road policing, denounce those persons that, okay, when we see the video, that uh, uh, what happened to George Floyd should not have happened, denounce the officers that mercilessly beat Rodney King, denounce the officer that shot the guy that was running away from him. You pull him over a traffic stop, he started running, and you shoot the guy in the back while he's running away from you. Because I explained, you owe it to the majority of your membership that does not, be, does not perform like this, that perform honorably and lawfully. But like with just about anything else in life, those people that do it poorly, those people that break the law, they get the bulk of the attention. They're the ones that we see on the news every day. We won't see on the news those officers, two guys with whom I worked, what they were doing their off time. They established these camps and they're still doing it in their retirement 
helping these inner city kids get scholarships to go to school and football and cheerleading. We won't hear about them. We won't hear about that officer in Florida. I, won't, I, I saw that video and it's absolutely wonderful. I guess he got a complaint about the kids making too much noise playing basketball. I, I remember. I know that one. I know right. I've seen that video. Yes. Right. And he ended up, sh- and then they, and remember they, and, uh, they shot, and they, they laughed and they talked. And he told them the next day he was coming back with backup. And he came back with backup. Yeah. All the famous Shaquille O'Neal. That's, that's backup for you. See, but. We won't see that guy on the news every doggone day. Now, it's it kind of like you're the law and order. It's, you know, we sell this fake vision of what the criminal justice system is. We see negative news sells, positive news does not. And we need to see it all. We need to see it all. Yeah, right. You remember that Don Henley used to be a part of the group, the rock group, the Eagles. Yes. In the early 80s, he released a song called Dirty Laundry. Uh-huh. I had the first verse, I make my living on the evening news. Right. Give me something, something I can use because people love it when you lose. They love dirty laundry. Right, right. Tragically, that sells, but you know, I think, doesn't that tell you maybe a little insight? What's wrong with us? Yeah, well, I think, you know, this is a... A complex system, James. I mean, as a as a scholar, I mean, you, you don't get to get a PhD in in your case, criminal justice, without becoming an expert in a in, in a slice of you know what runs our system. And we we live in a complex system, and you know sometimes we do things that appear to be easy, and we don't give any thought to the long term implications and. But I think you're, you know, from the book, I mean, we have to start somewhere. And I, I do really appreciate, and I, and I commented on your LinkedIn post earlier about this idea of starting the, the conflict education and training and uh, critical thinking skills as early as possible. And because and, I believe even from a personality perspective, we need to understand that we're all different. And how you solve a problem is different than how I solve a problem. How we lead, your, how you lead is different than how I lead. And that, that understanding coupled with understanding how to, you know, uh, have quality conflict or, or productive conflict, I think that the sooner we can start that in, 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 as early as possible in our schools, I think that will have a, a, a positive effect on this system that we live in. As do I. And I think as far as the police academy training is concerned, that has to change. Yeah. Because and I've heard people in uh, uh, some say we need more cultural awareness. And, and I'm like, there's cultural awareness already taught in the police academies. But if you're trying to start a garden in the desert, it's not going to do very well. So... What we need, I think we're, let's do a much, much better job of vetting as far as those people that actually make it through the process. <laughs> See, I really believe that a huge focal point in the training should be this. Once you complete the training and you get to pin on the badge, the star, the shield or whatever, that does not represent power. And I think that word power is one of the most misused words in our life. When you become the officer, it's not power. It's an awesome responsibility. And a focal point in this training should be like 
They told me in Marine Corps boot camp, are your shoulders broad enough to bear the burden of this responsibility? Right, definitely. As again, again the, the drill instructor said, I will find out whether that you packed the gear to serve in my beloved Corps. No, I'm going to find out whether not your shoulders are broad enough to bear the burden of being a Marine, because that's an awesome responsibility. Being a police officer is an awesome responsibility. Mm-hmm. And we need to know whether or not you can handle it. Now, here the municipalities say, well, gee, we spend so much money with the training and the, the testing and, and et cetera. So we need most of these people to graduate, and get into the police cars and get out there on the beat. All right. Quoted in the book from an article published in the Wall Street Journal about the hundreds of millions of dollars municipalities are are spending now to address issues of police misconduct. The old commercial, pay me now or pay me later. And if you pay me later, you're going to pay me more. Unbelievable. Well, you know, uh, things are not good. I mean, you can look wherever you get your news from, whatever those sources are, we are at the edge of that cliff, so to speak. And we, we, something has to be done. And I think it it is taken, you know, this incident in, in Minneapolis with George Floyd to, I think perhaps more than even the other incidents, wake up the public to the need that there has to be a change. We just cannot keep throwing millions upon millions of dollars. I mean, to outfit, you know, officers and mutant ninja turtle outfits. And we should be investing in their ability to manage conflict, manage conversation, recognize mental health, and hopefully, you know, things will change. I mean, I I guess I have to have hope. I have to have hope. The most valuable thing that I picked up in the Marine Corps training, and they drilled this at us, is that when you get into an emergency situation, you have to divorce yourself from the emotion. Because once you get emotional, you develop tunnel vision. And as senior drill instructor Gunnery Sergeant Stein told us, once you develop tunnel vision, you become a dead marine. You need a panoramic view. If you divorce yourself from the emotion, you make rational thoughts, I mean, rational decisions. And rational decisions will most times lead to situations where people are not shot and killed. Right. That should be the goal. Right. Because you, 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 I told you why I worked in Chicago. Yeah. Okay. So, and the only thing for which I have never arrested a person is treason. Anything else you can name, I'd lock somebody up for doing, but I never shot a person. And I, you know, I never shot a person. I didn't have to because in each of those situations, my rational mind guided my actions. Emotions were nowhere to be seen. And kick that out, kick that was gone. Rational decision making. Bad guy went to jail. Nobody got hurt. Fantastic. Dr. James Bowen, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Success Insight podcast and chat about your book, Fixing the Broken Thing, the American Criminal Justice System. If our listeners would like to learn more about you and your work, where are the best places for them to go? Amazon, for sure. And I do have a LinkedIn profile. And in that too distant future, the follow-up to this book will be on the bookshelf. Fantastic. Because I'm 
Yeah, because I'm going to expound on chapter six in the follow-up book because the title of that is The Problem is We the People. Right. Well, we'll definitely look forward to reading the, the new book and really want to thank you for taking the time to come on our show and chat with us about your, your background, the work that you're doing, and the, the, this book of yours, Fixing the Broken Things. So thank you so much, and we really appreciate it. And once again, thank you for having me. Fantastic. All right, folks, we have just been chatting with Dr. James Bowen. James is the author of Fixing This Broken Thing the American criminal justice system. And as uh, James has shared, I mean, he has been a Marine, he's been a police officer uh, for over 15 years in Chicago and, and in an area of Chicago that is very well known for its difficult life and just the, the, just the things that, you know, Chicago's a wonderful city, but like any major city anywhere in this country, there are some tough spots and uh, James spent his career really trying to do good, you know, for the people in, in the community. Today, he is a mental health counselor and again, the author of Fixing This Broken Thing, the American Criminal Justice System, and he's currently working on his next book. So definitely uh, go out to LinkedIn and connect with him as well as pick up a copy of his book on Amazon and we will provide links to both sites as well. All right, folks, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, go out there, have a safe, phenomenal day. Take care of your friends, take care of your family and do the right thing and wear that mask, okay? So we'll see you on the next episode of the Success Insight Podcast. Take care now. Success Insight is a production of Fox Coaching and First Story Strategies. Find us online, successinsightpodcast.com.